Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Barent Neustraten. Good morning and Shabbat Shalom. We live in a remarkable times, don't we? Um, on my mind, I spend a lot of time looking at the news and the disturbing facts as they come from uh, Europe, Middle Europe, Eastern Europe are horrendous. You know, I was born in the last year of the war. I know it's hard to believe looking at me, but I was. <laughs> and I grew up with the stories of the wars as they unfolded there, of course, in, in Europe. And I always remember so many people when they recalled their memories and informed me because I wanted to know. Um, they used to say, and this will be the last war. It isn't. Sad, isn't it? It isn't. How privileged we are to live in this country. Don't forget to thank God for this nation. The freedom that we enjoy, uh, the safety, relative safety that we enjoy, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. We must never take for granted. Um, let's bow our heads just for a moment as we invite the Holy Spirit to be amongst us again. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this privilege that we can worship in freedom. And I thank you for everyone here. Lord, uh, I'm only but a means, a vessel, and I earnestly pray that you give me the words to say, particularly as we speak on the sanctuary, that we may have an understanding, appreciation particularly, and a surety of your love for us and that that may fortify our minds and our resolve to live the way you want us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. So it's the gospel in the courtyard, not the sermon in the courtyard. There's a difference. The gospel in the courtyard, on the right side, my right side, and your right side too, we see the shadow of the cross. You have to appreciate, we have Bibles. Any and every one of us has Bibles, often multiple ones, electronic ones. These people in early days didn't have Bibles. How would they learn? How would they know about God? And God provided a means, a teaching tool, which was so important that taught the plan of salvation. And that was the sanctuary, and we're going to look at that in a minute, of course. Uh, I was very happy with the, with the, the lesson this morning of uh, the, the Sabbath school. Uh, it contained half my sermon, so for those of you who were in that Sabbath school, here we go again, yes. The gospel in the courtyard. The courtyard, let me explain. The courtyard here that we are speaking about today, that courtyard, of course, is pertaining to the sanctuary. And the sanctuary, or the temple, 
as it used to be are, are of course one and the same thing the same meanings I mean the buildings were impressive particularly the Solomonic temple it was magnificent magnificent but of course uh, it had the same function as the little portable uh, tabernacle that was in the wilderness and we're going to particularly teach and speak from that the second temple the Zerubbabel temple which was completed in 516 BC uh, actually beautified by Herod the Great actually uh, the temple that Jesus walked into was magnificent as well not as good as the Solomonic temple so there were three temples if you like the portable one, the Solomonic one and the one, the Zerubbabel one that was when the Jews returned from Babylon that they rebuilt and was beautified and further uh, magnificently decorated during the days of King Herod now let's first get look at the words particularly from the Hebrew perspective a sanctuary what does it mean well it's a place set aside for a holy purpose and uh, the word here is migdas in the Hebrew which comes from the verb from the word kodesh the adjective which means holy holy or holiness it's also called goes by the name of the tabernacle which is a gold in Hebrew, the miskan from the verb shakan, that means to dwell, which has a permanency about it. So what we are talking about, something set aside for a holy purpose, for a holy purpose, because it is occupied by the one who dwells there permanently, and that is God himself. And the two go together. If God dwells there, it is set aside for a holy purpose, and God will only dwell in that which is set aside for a holy purpose, whether that is a building, a church, church congregation, or an individual. The prefiguring for the sanctuary is really found in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. Moses had been attending to the sheep of his father-in-law, his name was, the father-in-law's name was Jethro, and he'd done so for 40 years. And uh, he encountered a burning bush, you know the story. What attracted Moses to the burning bush and enticed him to come very close? What is the answer to that? It, there was a fire but the bush was not consumed now as he approached as he approached that burning bush a voice said take off your sandals because wearing sandals on that piece of ground would mean ownership it wasn't his God was dwelling there God was the flame and so Moses responded quickly and he bowed down because he knew who it was marvelous really a holy God a fire amongst a burning in a burning in, in a bush a, a bush that would be uh, a mutation of sithels or thorns something of that nature which is uh, what you find plenty on that mountain what was the name of the mountain let me just you know, forget just preaching a sermon let, let, let me get a bit of feedback what was the name of the mountain Horeb, yes. Uh, so what does the name Horeb, what does it mean? Does anybody ever look that up? It means wilderness. It goes also by another name. 
Mount Sinai. Does anybody ever have looked up, and I, I keep encouraging you to do this, have you ever looked up in a lexicon, you can take a Strong's Concordance, that'll do the job as well. What Sinai means? It means thorny. Thorns. Chapter 3, the book of Genesis. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth. Synonymous, therefore, to the Hebrew mindset to sin, because God pronounced that right after the fall, the committing of the, the sin of Adam and Eve. Bear that in mind. It became known as the mountain of God. And so he bows down, and then God gives him a commission. And he's got to go to Egypt. The Egyptians have many gods. He's got a message for them. The message is simple. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And then, really, the people of God, did they know their God? So Moses asked God, who should I say it sends me? And that still has a relevance to us today, very much so in the times that we live. And he says, I am that I am. Well, that's how it is translated. In the Hebrew, aye, asir, aye, it means I will be that which I will be. And it has the connotation, I do not change. God doesn't change. And we live in a volatile world. We have had the pandemic, we have a war on our hands with tremendous ramifications that will affect us as well. And then you say to yourself, what a world we live in. What a world we live in. It's a wonderful assurance. We have a God who doesn't change. And that is a fact. Now, the psalm, the, uh, Moses was asked by God this. He said, let them make me a sanctuary. Finish it off for me, will you? Isn't that nice? We have a holy God, an, an, an incredible God. What does he want? He wants to live with us. Amazing. He really desires, always did, still does, ever so strong. He wants to dwell with us. A holy God among sinful humanity, like the burning bush, a flame that then does not destroy the bush. A holy God living amongst sinful people, the sinful people not being destroyed. That's amazing. God found a way. And the way is actually the sanctuary. Because if you build the sanctuary, then God can dwell amongst us. And I'll give you more details on that sanctuary. It's a bit of a teaching exercise this morning. The Hebrew word for... Uh, image or pattern is tafnid, which has the connotation of model, example, design. You could even use the word shadow. And so of that sanctuary, that little portable sanctuary, there was nothing, there was nothing that Moses designed or invented what should uh, be there by way of material, color, size. God gave him absolutely the full plan how to build it. This is important. It was all God's design. 
And so let me build, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell amongst them. The psalmist, David, a thousand years before God became man, said this, Your way, O God, and thank you, Gabba, for reading it so well, Your way, O God, is God's way, His dealings, His plans, His intentions, His purpose, you can find where? In the sanctuary. Don't sit here and believe this is a long time ago. The cross was 2,000 years ago. Of what possible interest in 2022 could the physical sanctuary be to me living in the era that we live? Can I put it to you? If you want to know and understand, we have the letter of the Hebrews for Sabbath school, right? If you really want to understand the letter of the Hebrews, you must understand the sanctuary. Because God's way is in the sanctuary. David saw that. And if you want to understand how God saves you and how he wants to save you and can save you, study the sanctuary. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. And because David understood that there was no proper sanctuary at his day because his son Solomon built the first temple. And there was, there was a tent of meeting, but it was not a proper sanctuary. But David had studied it. And it prompted him to say, who is so great a God as our God? And I hope as we have the glimpses of the sanctuary, uh, particularly today we confine ourselves mainly to the courtyard, that we can say that with David, who is so great a God as my God, our God. Go to the beginning. Adam and Eve had sinned. Fig leaves won't do, they never will do. So what did God do? What was God's action? The Lord made man tunics of skin. For what purpose? Then he may close them. God provided tunics of skin and closed them with that. What does that mean? Where did the skin come from? The Bible is very light on details here. But here obviously was an initial sacrifice an initial object lesson that was taught to Adam and Eve in very physical terms where God provided them with the tunics of skin. Prefiguring what? How do you see this? How do you see this? <coughs> it's prefiguring, pardon me, it's prefiguring the robe of righteousness. Can you see that? The robes that we make, the robe what you wear is your conduct, is your behavior. If you can remember that. That's what it is. And so the fig leaves won't do and God applied the tunics of skin. Prefiguring, making the promise that one day they would wear the robe of righteousness. The very one that they lost when they sinned they saw each other's nakedness. They were ashamed, not because of a physical presentation to each other. After all, they were married. What we, what we have is that that garment of light had left them. 
and they could see that they had sinned and that was their guilt and that was their shame. Now Abel was different from Cain and in the Bible God says, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. They go together. If God accepts your offering, he respects you. And respecting God is a prerequisite. I love, it was mentioned in the lesson of Mount Moriah. And again, I'm going to keep coming back to this. Does anybody know what the name of that mountain means? What does the name Moriah mean? I, I keep telling you this. Start making the effort. Moray is teacher. Mori is my teacher. Ya is the abbreviated form of the term Yeva, which is the personal name of God, according to the Masoretic text. It means that the Lord is my teacher. Who is your teacher? Well, the Lord is my teacher. God shared with Abram, his friend, what it is like to sacrifice your son. That's what he did. That's what he did. And that is the object lesson here. At Mount Moriah, God took the willingness for the deed. Not so at Calvary, but he did at Mount Moriah. Now you remember that Isaac's life was spared because God stayed his hand, the hand of Abram, who was about to slay him. A remarkable story. I still often read that particular chapter, and I, I try to understand, try to understand the faith of the man and the willingness to obey to that degree. I admire it. His hand was stayed, and there was, as he turned around, as he turned around, there was a ram caught in the thicket, and again, the thicket here is really sinful humanity. The ram is an animal of sacrifice for the people. It was caught with its horns. Uh, it is really representing the power of the mind. Keren, the horn, means power in Hebrew. It was caught in this bush. It couldn't get away. That reminds me, that reminds me of a God who considered us, considered the human race, considered the people, and his mind was on the people. He couldn't get away. He had to come and he had to do what he did do. And that is to be an offering for the sins of the human race. He did that. You can go to patriarchs and prophets and she makes it crystal clear that ram typified who? Christ. I normally say who did Isaac typify and people say that. It's Christ. No, 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 no. That's us. Isaac is Israel. That's us. It's the ram that is like Christ. And so that explains what we just read here. So Abram went and he took the ram that he noticed and he offered it up as a, for a burnt offering. Notice, very qualifying here, instead of his son, the one who took the place. We worship the God who took the place of us. And then he says, I put my name there. What uh, Abram gave that mountain a name. What was the name of that mountain? You could know it in English. 
I hear some mumbling, but I don't hear what I want to hear. No. No, no. Well, actually, you're not wrong either. But that's not specifically... <laughs> actually, you're right. Salem is the, the forerunner for Yerushalayim. I mean, that is true. Um, but that's not the instance here, the name that he gave to that mountain. The Lord will... Yes, now you've got it. Yavah Yireh. Yireh means to see. So a vision of God is his provision. It so often is. And the provision of God, the vision of God is that he would substitute, that he would offer himself instead. And that is really why the mountain got that name. And then it says here, when God speaks to Solomon, I put my name there. Name is character. The character of God is expressed in the willingness to take the place. That tells you so much about God. So much. He was willing to take the place. And so he did. Mount Moriah. Back to the temple. The earthly was the object lesson, and I hope you gather this, to the heavenly. There are two sanctuaries. There is one courtyard. The courtyard is the world. Because the altar of sacrifice, prefiguring, of course, Calvary, is in the world. No sacrifices in heaven, of course. But what is duplicated, what is the pattern, of course, that is in heaven, are the holy place and the most holy place. And I hope to talk about that another time in a sermon and explain further about what Christ is doing in the holy place and certainly what he's doing in the most holy place, I think it'll help you. It helped me tremendously to understand. The earthly is the object lesson for the heavenly. Now this is a picture I quite like. There is the, the old man explaining to the young man, or the young child, the layout of the encampment of the Israelites. Do you know that the encampment layout of the Israelites had a gospel? Had a gospel. Right in the middle, right in the middle, you had the sanctuary. And I can never quite find an image that is quite correct, but this one is as close as it comes. So you have the sanctuary in the middle, the fire that represented in the burning bush in the middle. That is God, God's presence. But there was an, a distance between that and the nearest circumference of the Levitical tents. There was a circumference that was but had a preserved a distance between the sanctuary and them of about one and a half kilometers, probably a little bit more. I'm telling you this. Say you were um, convicted of your sin and you knew you had to make right with God. Say you did. So you would bring in a little animal, don't you? Like normally a lamb. And you walk over to, the, to that little building. I, I want to point out to you as well that, that that little building, which was not particularly big, about 50 meters long and uh, uh, half of that wide, it was just small. But you walked that distance, you walked that distance, and everybody could see you. 
making up with God was almost a public act. You never confessed your sins audibly to the priest. It was between you and God and it still is. Still is. So you walk that distance and uh, yeah, you can imagine people see you. But it was a public act. It was a public act of worship. Now, you would be worth your while, it would be worth your while to study the tribes here. To the west, and I'll just read them out, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, all pertaining, of course, to, well, Joseph, and uh, had the two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Benjamin. These were the sons of, of Rachel. Then you have, uh, to the north, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. You had, uh, to, the, to, the, to the east, you had uh, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And then, of course, to the west, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. There's something interesting that I discovered, which I think is really worth your while to know. When you look at it properly, you see the tabernacle and you see the Levitical orders that were involved with the removal and the care of the tabernacle, and I won't go into it now. But to the east, you have the same that I mentioned just now. What is worthwhile knowing that to the east, Judah, which means the Lord be praised, or praise the Lord, uh, had a standard, and there was a lion. Can you remember that? Judah had a lion. Then when you go to God, Reuben and, and, and Simeon, Reuben had a standard, and uh, it was a man. It had the face or the image of a man. If you go to the west, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, Ephraim had the standard of an ox. An ox is an animal for sacrifice, of course, for all the people. And then to the north, you had Asher, Dan, and Naphtali, and Dan. Dan means judgment, actually. And he had a standard of an eagle. Now, when you look at that, when you look at it and you start at the east, I, I, like, I like studying a Bible like this. When you look at the east, you have the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah, who became man, the standard here of Reuben, who volunteered to become the animal of sacrifice, the ox, so that he could judge you, according to the tribe of Dan, that's the meaning, and he bears you on eagle's wings, that is how he saves you. I just like, there is an intent in everything that was pertaining to the Israelites. God was continuously teaching them. And it, it was profitable. It was profitable. The imagery you find in the seraphim or the cherubim, whatever you like to call them, and the book of Revelation, as you find them also in the book of Ezekiel. You have a lion, you have the calf, you have the man, and you have the eagle. It is important. It has a message. It is right from the beginning. It's in fact in Ezekiel, and it is in the first chapter, and you can find it right at the book of the uh, Revelation, the last book. It's important. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Apostle Paul said this, he, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now when you, when you look at this, to, he knew no sin. The knowing is by experience. That's what it means. But he made him sin for us. He bore our sins that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is what happened. And that is so true. 
that is so wanted true. And it is wonderfully, wonderfully explained in the Old Testament in the sanctuary. There's a word, it's goel, or gaal is the verb. It means a close relative. That word is very significant. Remember the book of Ruth. Boaz is going to redeem the land, the debt of Naomi. So the land can go to Ruth. Get it? That's what happened. And he takes his sandal off. That's the same story. The, the token of ownership. There was a closer relative who wanted the land but not the girl. He wasn't going to pay that for her. And so he handed it back. And Boaz took the opportunity to make the... There's a whole story in that. There's a, an incredible application here. Boaz made the, the offer and he set the debt free. And therefore the land via Naomi went to Ruth. That's the inheritance. It's a beautiful thing. Goel also means avenger. If someone did you wrong, if someone killed you, a nearest kinsman had the right to take revenge. That was, a, that was a Levitical law. And in a way, there's an application too. Satan wants the worst for us, but what he wants for us, he will suffer himself. Christ, our nearest relative, will see to that. He's got to be your nearest kinsman in order to be able to do that. So the nearest way that you can do that is to become human, to become man. That's why Christ, that's why God had to become man. He had to become man so he could say that he was the nearest kinsman, tempted in all ways that we are. Tempted in all ways that we are. And he, that is exactly what he did do. Redeemer, kinsman, avenger, it has a wide application. Ezekiel has the same, the soul that sins shall die. Here is a prophet who talks to the people in exile who blame their forebearers. Never blame your, for, blame your forebearers because Ezekiel made it perfectly plain. The, sin, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So how can Christ take my guilt? Sin and guilt are not transferable. It's a biblical precept, concept. How can Christ take my sins and my guilt? There is in the second chapter of the book of Genesis a statement. And a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall what? He became one flesh. That's why he was nailed to the cross. Because wood is humanity. The Roman soldiers didn't realize they were acting out the gospel in the courtyard. He became us. And that is how he saves us. And that is all taught in the courtyard of the sanctuary. It's a wonderful way. It makes you think. When Balaam stood there on that mountain and he overlooked the encampment. He overlooked it. There's another principle here you must know. He overlooked the encampment of the Israelites, all 1.5 million. And he saw in the middle, he saw the sanctuary. And the cloud that no doubt was there, that given the shadow in the place, 
where you find no shadow. And he was meant to curse. Balak of Moab had commissioned him to do so. There was a good quit in it for him. And Balaam wanted the money. But God wouldn't let him curse. You remember the story? And so, and so all he could do is bless them. And this is what he said. This is what he said. He said, he, God, has not observed iniquity in Jacob. Let's hold it right there. How can you say that? Last quarter we studied the book of Deuteronomy, right? Remember that? Did Israel play up in the 40 years in the desert? Yes, oh, oh yes. It would give you grey hairs. In fact, after 40 years it's a wonder you still have any hair left. That was Israel. But Balaam looks over this and he says, No, God has not observed any iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. Wickedness in Israel? No. How can you say that? There's something about the sanctuary. The sanctuary has the means, the one who is represented by the sanctuary, has the means to forgive you your sins. It never happened. Have you ever dreamt that you could walk around freely and nothing, nobody could ever point a finger at you. There'd be no memory of any shortcoming or sin. Because you are completely, completely sinless. The sanctuary can take care of that. Because of who it represents. And it's your only chance to be sinless. Is to be saved. The rope of righteousness... No memories of sin. Marvelous. Marvelous what the future before us. The Lord his God is with him and the shout of a king is amongst them. So look at the equation. The Lord his God is the king. Jesus said he was a king. He's also God. He could make that decision. This is for us. The sanctuary and is completely messianic. Destroy this temple, Jesus said, and then what? And in three days, I what? I shall build it, I shall raise it up. Marvelous. I want you to have a look. He so identified. The Jews crucified their temple. And they experienced the physical building, the loss of the physical building 39 years later. But in 31 AD, they crucified their temple. That's what they did do. This is just a brief outline. And just if you look at the measurements, if you bear with me, 100 cubits is 150 feet. You can work it out as about 50 meters long, 25 meters wide. You come from the east, the burnt offerings. The labor was only exclusively for use of the priest who would wash himself before going into the holy place. And you have the holy place and the most holy place. You all know that? You know the basics? You got to get to know this. I really urge you to do that. The earthly was an object lesson for the heavenly. We said that. How are you going to understand the heavenly sanctuary and its services if you don't understand the earthly? Because that is the object lesson. Did you know that the sanctuary was prophetic? It prophesied the Lamb of God to come. And then it did do far more. It also prophesied the resurrection. 
It did. Because who did that lamb, who did the offering typify? Who? Jesus. Who did the priest who then took a bit of the blood or a bit of the meat and would go into the holy place? Who did the priest prefigure? Christ. So Christ is the sacrifice, but then after that he goes to the heavens where he has his ministration of our heavenly high priest. The prediction is that the sacrifice was perfect, successful, he therefore can go as our priest on our behalf to the holy place in heaven. Do you get that? And then also, of course, there is an investigative judgment. There is an ascension, there is an investigative judgment. The Yom Kippur every year, tenth day of the seventh month, the month of Tishrei, the most solemn day on the Jewish religious calendar, they knew about that. Yeah? Can you see that it is prophetic? And you can also look even at the time. 31 AD, it's about 4,000 years after creation. Anamundi, we call that. And then some 40 days later, he goes into, he ascends into heaven. And there he intercedes on our behalf for our sanctification. I'll talk about that another time. And then he ultimately, we look at 1844, the time prophecies of Daniel. Oh, how I wish that every one of you knew that prophecy by heart. So you could explain it to every searching soul. It is one of the greatest gifts. You know, our movement comes from the most holy place. And I'll promise it that one day I'll incorporate that in a sermon as well. I, I just wish that everybody really studied this. It's so essential. One more principle from the sanctuary. Sha'ar. Sha'ar is the word for the door. You know, if you come to the sanctuary and you come to the veil, it was just a curtain, but they called it a door. And so, and so uh, the Hebrew word, uh, there's various words for door, but the one used is sha'ar. And that is very, very meaningful. Because it also means how you think. You go to Proverbs here, if you go to Proverbs, for as he, a man, thinks in his heart, so is he. What's on your mind is what you are. Is that true? That's true. That is true. Uh, remember Jesus saying, uh, I am the door. He would have used that word, Sha'ar. He is the Sha'ar. Uh, Apostle Paul, let this mind be in you, and you'll have to... One, when you come home, look at the full text. That this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. It is one and the same concept. A door is a mindset. You can't enter the courtyard in, re in repentance unless that mindset is one of repentance. You cannot go into the holy place unless you are sanctified. You can't go into the most holy place unless you are glorified. And we'll talk about these things another time. Can you, do you have an idea now what I'm trying to tell you this morning? I, I'm pleading with you to study the sanctuary. Because I do believe it will be so profitable for you. And so, the altar of sacrifice was made of what? Brass, I don't mind that, bronze, yeah. 
It was actually made of acacia wood and overlaid with brass. That's what it was. You know what brass is, bronze is? Tin and copper, very good. It's an alloy. The superior copper has an alloy taking into itself the inferior sinful dross, which is another word for tin in Hebrew. You are hidden, you, the tin, the sinful tin. In the courtyard, right now, right here, you are hidden in the beloved, the superior copper. That was the message from the courtyard. That's how he can save you. And then he pays the penalty for you. There's so much to learn. It was called the Tamid. It was done on a daily basis. There were the various offerings. We studied some, a bit of that this morning there in the letter to the Hebrews. It was interesting. The red heifer I would like to particularly mention as the one sacrifice that gives you the most specific details when it comes to Jesus' sacrifice. The unintentional sins, the intentional sins still could be forgiven if you repented. And then there is the rebellious sin, the high-handed sin for which there is no forgiveness. Because that is the sin against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comes to you and convicts you of sin. You resist that, there is no salvation. That is true. Now, the petitioner, and this is really, I won't go into this. The petitioner confesses his sin silently. Notice. The petitioner kills the animal. Aren't you glad that you don't have to do that anymore? Kills the animal. And then the petitioner removes the fat. Fat is inferior tissue. It's sinful tissue. The petitioner is removing the fat. It's his job to do that. Well, later on the priest used to do that. But initially this is what the petitioner had to do. In fact, the petitioner had to take the skin of the animal too. The skin is your conduct. It's, what, it's your behavior. And in removing it, he would recognize and express the recognition to God my behavior has been wrong. Take the fat away, my behavior has been incomplete. These were all confessions. In fact, I put it to you that the sinner and the sinners are now separated when that is all done because to make that sacrifice, the sinner offers a prayer. Every sacrifice was a prayer in itself. You remove the sin from your life that you want to. You permit him to remove it if you like. That's another meaning. But you, you do, you want to get rid of the sin in your life. You, your behavior, the skin is no longer, it is not acceptable to God. It's not acceptable to you. You would want to be holy. A desire to be holy, to be righteous, is the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And so, the sins then get transferred to the sanctuary, and that is for another time. I like this statement in Selected Messages. Every dying victim was a type of Christ, he says. Which lesson uh, was expressed on mind and heart in the most solemn, sacred ceremony, and explained definitely, she says, by the priest doing what I'm doing this morning. Explain it. 
they were explained what they were doing. So it had the meaning it should have. Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish. And here is the introduction, of course, but have eternal life. Here is the introduction of the look of faith. You have to look at Jesus in faith. He's worthy of your faith. Every bit of it. And I, if I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will what? Draw. It says people, but people, does, it doesn't say that in your Bible. Leave people out. I will draw all to myself. You know what it means? The whole cosmos looked at the sacrifice made by their creator, their God. And in doing what he did, the way that he dealt with the sin problem, he didn't just draw the human race to himself, he drew the whole angelic host, all the other worlds, in admiration, acknowledged the righteousness and the justice of God, and that God is love. God is love. We're almost there. I can't resist this. Hoc as corpus meum. That is Latin. Or this is my body. I just want you to be aware of that. 1.2 billion people around the globe make this error, are being told, taught this error. The transubstantiation, where the, we talked about it in the Sabbath school lesson, where it is believed that the, the bread becomes the body, physical body of Christ, who has to be sacrificed again, because according to Catholic, Catholicism, Jesus could only die for the sins up to his day. And nowadays, of course, and since that day, you are dependent on the church, who is entitled to offer the sacrament of the transubstantiation. That's the belief. It's blasphemous. Terribly blasphemous. What it is saying is that Jesus did not do what he was supposed to do. What it is saying, through the adoration of the host, what, he, what they are saying is it was not complete. Every crucifix which Jesus portrayed as nailed to it tells the whole Catholic story. We've got to help these people to tell them how wrong it is. Jesus is still dying for the sins of the world in their mind. Through the Mass. Oh, how wrong this is. What is it doing? Christ is diminished. He is diminished in the work that he did do, and he's diminished in the work that he do is doing now. Here is the question I want to put to you. If Christ did not make a complete sacrifice, how could he go to heaven and be my priest in heaven? He couldn't. He couldn't. And subsequently, you have, you have in Catholicism, you don't have the doctrine of the heavenly sanctuary and Christ's ministration for there. I was watching the television as I was following closely the, the events as they unfolded in the Ukraine. And you might have seen the same clip where the ambassador of, of Ukraine to the uh, United Nations uh, was informed by, by text message through his phone that the invasion had started. Remarkable that, 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 that they were sitting there trying to find a peaceful way, but of course that was cut short by the aggression of the aggressor. 
And he was emotionally charged, and I can understand that, and I commend him for his containment. As it happened that the, the chairman of that meeting happened to be the Russians. And he said, you should leave that chair. You're not worthy of that chair. And then he said something to him, and that gave him away as a Catholic, but he said, war criminals do not go to purgatory. They go straight to hell, ambassador. And I'll never forget the way he said it. He's partially right. There's no purgatory. There's no purgatory. That is the means in Catholicism to be sanctified. Purgatory. No such thing. There is no such thing as eternal hellfire. But there is an account. There is a destruction by fire for those who do not repent. And that is what he was really trying to say. And I can understand him saying it. Here is the statement that puts it all at rest. It is finished. And I, I'm sure that the word that below there is called, is actually shalom, which sounds like shalom. Shalom is peace. Shalom means fully paid. Now this comes to us in the Greek. Selios in the Greek means exactly the same thing. It means fully paid. When you, when you have a mortgage and you somehow get the money and you go to the bank manager and you don't do this anymore like that, but you put it on the table there and say there is all the outstanding, there is all the money, it is now fully paid. That's the word. Jesus knew what he went through and it be worse, uh, deserves far more attention. But what I want to bring to you right now is Jesus died triumphant because when he said it is finished and he would have said Havar Shalam or Zesh Shalam he would have used that word because Shalam sounds, it means fully paid it sounds like Shalom you see guilt, sin is debt we pray to God forgive us our debt forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors Sin is debt, okay? You can't pay it. You haven't got the means to pay. He paid it all. And that is what he said at the cross. He said, I paid it all. He paid it all out. He, he, he died for the, all of the sins of the whole world. But not everybody takes the benefits that comes from that. But that's what he paid. And he said that. And as I said, he died triumphant. Shalom. That's what he said. Finish with this little story. I don't think I've ever told you. It's one of the most touching stories. Franciszek, Gajosnia, Zek, anybody here that's Polish and can improve upon that? No? In the absence thereof, you'll have to put up with that. He died in 1995, was born in 1901. He became 93, 94 years old. I wonder that's the man on the right. The, the, the picture of the, uh, the house there, the, the, the gates, uh, it says here, Arbeit macht frei. It means in German, it means uh, work makes you free. Uh, that was a misnomer for the institution because you're looking at the entrance of Dachau, not far away from Munich and Bayern, southern Germany. Many of you, some of you might have been there, visited it. Some 40,000 plus people killed there. 
They were killed not by the gas ovens, they were killed by just being flogged to death in forced labor. The stories are absolutely horrendous. Well, this man here, he was a Polish sergeant and he was transferred from a prison by the Nazis to, 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 to this setup here in Dachau. One morning, it wrote at, at what they, when they call up all the prisoners and count them, uh, one was missing. And the, uh, the Hauptmann, the, uh, the SS leader, uh, his name was, I even remember that, Karl Fritz. He decided that 10 people should die. 10 people should die for the one that has been perceived had escaped. The man hadn't escaped, he was in a drain and he, it was later on when the body decayed that they realized there was someone there. And so he picked 10 people. Now one of them particularly, and it's the man on the right, pleaded for his life. He had kids, family, who needed him. And he pleaded so intensely, which would have made no difference, that this man, there was a man that stepped forward. And this is the picture of the man that stepped forward. And his name, his name, uh, and he deserves to be mentioned, and I'm going to try to, Maximilian Maria Kolbe was his name. He was a Roman Catholic priest, a Franciscan priest. He asked permission to the, uh, the camp commandant, and then he pleaded with the camp commandant. He said, look, I'm a priest. I have no family. I, I, I would take his place, because what was going to happen to the tent they were going to be obviously losing their lives. And the way they lost their lives, by the way, they were put in a hole in the ground with a grid of iron over it, and they were starved to death. That's what they did. He knew what was coming, Colby, but he was willing to take, he was willing to take the punishment. What prompts, what love prompts, what emotion prompts you to do that? And uh, there's another picture I want to show you, and that is the man who got saved. He was there in his 90s, and look at the little child. He had a full life, but he spent his life, and this is what I want you to know. This man, this Francesco, he spent his life telling anywhere, everywhere, anybody about what this man had done, this Maximilian, Maria Colby had done for him. Now, Colby was beatified, and we won't worry about that. But I'm just saying, that kind of love, now you multiply it by much and much and infinitely more, and you begin to have an idea, the love of God shown in the courtyard. You get that picture? I hope you do. I hope you do, and I hope that God will bless you because he loves you so dearly. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the object lessons as they come to us from the courtyard of the sanctuary or the temple. The love that was shown therein that he was willing to take our place and you were willing to give him up. Amazing. We hear it so often and we can get used to it but we're also in danger of underestimating the cost and the motivation, the love that was behind it 
and still is burning there for us. Lord, help us to be grateful, to hand to you our full existence, our lives, everything. And Lord, help us to be the people that you really want us to be. In Jesus' most precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. This message was made available by the Watara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit waitarachurch.org.au. Archipeldridge will now sing, Jesus Loves Me. For the Bible tells me so Little ones to Him belong They are weak but He is strong Yes, Jesus loves me Yes, Jesus loves me Yes, Jesus loves me tells me so. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gate to open wide. He will wash away my sin, let his little child come in. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Jesus, take this heart of mine, make it pure and holy thine. Thou hast bled and died for me, I will henceforth live for thee. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.